Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. It's a bit of an early Arscast, I know, but it's been such a quiet week. And we don't hear from Mikel Arteta ahead of the Chelsea game until tomorrow. I thought I would put this one out. It's kind of timeless anyway. So it gives you something to listen to on a Thursday before things pick up ahead of our game against Chelsea on Saturday evening. It was my pleasure this week, yesterday in fact, to talk to a genuine Arsenal legend, Liam Brady. He has a brand new book out. It's called Born to Be a Footballer. He was in Dublin for the launch of that book, the Irish launch of that book uh, last night. So we met up yesterday afternoon and had a good old chat about the book itself, his time at Arsenal, the ups and downs, his move to Italy, the work he did at Arsenal as head of youth development and lots more besides Stay tuned for a bit more after, but right now, this is me and Liam Brady. Three waiting again for the cross from Price. Stapleton. Oh, Pat Rice in there. Oh, Brady won it beautifully. Look at that! Oh, look at that! Okay, well, it's my pleasure to be sitting in a Dublin hotel room with an Arsenal legend, Liam Brady. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Your book... Born to be a Footballer is out now. This isn't the first book you've written, though, or been involved in. You tell a story fairly early on about a book that was produced in your, in your 20s. What, uh, what made you decide to, to go again and do something else? Well, the first book was a bit of a disaster um, in as much as that, uh, it got me sued by... <laughs> A journalist who didn't take kindly to what I said about him in the book. Uh, it made absolutely nothing. Um, and I ended up in the High Court in London uh, defending myself against the libel case. Right. Um, that kind of put me off doing a book for many, <laughs> many years. Uh, but during lockdown, it was uh, Nick Callow, who I think it's an open secret. Nick is a quite a big Arsenal supporter, sure. and uh, he convinced me um, to go again, and uh, this time I felt I had a story, first time around, had a bit of a cheek doing a book at 24 years of age, but I was, uh, I was advised by my agent at the time that it would be a good thing to do, but it wasn't, so here we are, like... Uh, 50, 50 odd years in in playing football, 52 years since I joined Arsenal, 
and you know I've had a a long and uh, a career in probably most forms of the game as a player, as a manager, as head of youth development, as a pundit, uh, as a watcher. So. I felt I had something to write this time round. How did you find the process of, of getting it all down? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned Nick, and I know you had a, a bit of help from Larry Ryan from, from the Examiner as well. But in terms of the process of, of getting the book done and, and getting the words down on paper, how was that? Well, it was it was something to do during lockdown. You know, everybody had 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 situations in their personal lives where... There wasn't a lot to do. We weren't working. Uh, we couldn't go anywhere apart from maybe go outside for a walk. So it gave me a focus, and uh, uh, I researched it. I rang a lot of people that I knew down through the years, ex-players, players I'd played against, for their recollections of things. And uh, Like, for instance, I rang Kevin Keegan, who was very, very good to me, and he explained to me why... He went to he went to Hamburg when he did what was going on at Liverpool. It was something similar to my situation at Arsenal, and uh, I spoke to managers. I spoke to players I played against. I spoke to players I played with. It was it was great reminiscing because, as I say, uh, it was very little to do during lockdown. Like we had nearly two years of of staying at home. I mean. Did you get a lot from the people that you spoke to that made you go, oh, my God, I don't remember that, or, you know, I remember it differently, or, you know, how was that? Well, for instance, you know, when I went from Arsenal to Juventus, uh, I knew that I wasn't their first choice. But Keegan told me he was on, he was asked to go, he was asked to join right. before me. I didn't know that, so. And then I spoke to Rummenigger about the fact that I didn't end up at Bayern Munich where I thought I was going to go. And he said to me, well, Paul Breitner wanted to play midfield. And he said to the powers to be at Bayern, we don't need Liam Brady. I'm going to play midfield. So all these kind of things came out, you know, as I was ringing people around. And and then, the, uh, the you know, this Google and, and uh, Internet is brilliant. You know, if I wanted to remember a match or a, a game, the date, or you just type it into your iPad and bingo it's up there and sometimes you even see the highlights and so uh, it was an interesting process the, the book is called Born to be a Footballer and you talk at the very start about the the way sport was such a big part of your family life your brothers were uh, very good footballers and Gaelic footballers and I was wondering you know did you give any thought to the idea that, that talent runs in a family or you know, is it maybe because you are from a very young age steeped in the sports that you're involved in that sort of brings out whatever talent you have? Well, it must be some way in the genes, I think. Um, you know, the fact that there was five sons and four of them ended up playing professionally. I think it tells you that there's something in the genes. Uh, okay, we were... Uh, madly in love with the game as we were growing up all all, all f five of us in fact there was five sons um, my brother Eamon went off to sea into the, to the merchant navy uh, he tells me he could have been the best of the Brady family of course no, <laughs> no <are>. evidence <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's very little evidence to support that uh, but uh, 
uh, yeah, it was steeped in the family, and I, 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 I came late on the scene. My brothers were 20 years older than me, 20 and 19 years older than me, and they were already in England when I was a two- or three-year-old. They'd already gone to England to play football, so I just wanted to to emulate my big brothers. I mean, it's a, a fairly well-worn path, isn't it, the, the sort of footballer going across the water? Um but you know, how did it start for you um, when Arsenal became interested in you and you have trials and, you know, you, I think, said it was maybe a year and a half between the time that you were on trial for Arsenal and the time you were supposed to join Arsenal. I mean, do you remember that period of your life and thinking, OK, you know, you're still quite young. You were 15 when you went over. When you think about you know, there's a difference now. I think people would view 15-year-olds differently now, perhaps, than than back then. But what was it like in that period where you knew this big, big move was coming and, and a big sort of change in life? Did the fact that your brothers had gone over there and done that beforehand give you maybe a bit of a, not a security blanket, but a bit of comfort knowing that they'd gone there and done that and been successful? Well, first of all, Andrew, I was a Manchester United fan and uh, that was the time of Georgie Best and Bobby Charlton and Dennis Law and Man United winning in the league, I think, in 63, 67, European Cup in 68. I was 10, 11, 12 years of age. And Manchester United is a big club in Ireland because it always had Irish players in the team, you know, going back to the Munich air crash in 58 with Liam Whelan in the team. He was a Dublin lad. And then Johnny Giles, Tony Dunn in the 63 Cup final when United beat Leicester. So I was growing up as a as a Man United fan. And I thought I, I was told by the Man United scout just to be patient and... Uh, He'd get me over to United on trial. Uh, but Arsenal uh, saw uh, a bit of an opportunity. There was a, a man called Bill Darby who uh, wrote to the chief scout at Arsenal at the time, Gordon Clark, and said, you know, dear Mr. Clark, uh, Manchester United, I've just got the run of the place here. You know, there are lots of good kids in Dublin who have lots of very good schoolboy footballers in Dublin uh, but Man United have the pick of them and uh, and you should really think about changing this. Who was that guy? Who was Bill Darby? Was he just somebody who was involved in football uh, in Dublin? Was he a like a manager or was he a coach somewhere or was he just a guy with an eye for a, a player? No, I'm not too sure whether he had an affiliation with any schoolboy club or, but he just loved football and he loved watching kids playing and uh, and he thought, well, you know, he showed some initiative by writing away. I, I don't think Arsenal were the only club he wrote to um, but um, uh, he got a reply from Arsenal to say, okay, we hear what you're saying uh, we're going to send one of our uh, trusted scouts over to Dublin to meet you and uh, and have a chat with you and you take him to a match and I happen to be playing in that game. I mean, it's so fortuitous, isn't it? He could have well, all the games he could have gone to in in Dublin. Across yeah, the- there must have been hundreds of games going on. But uh, I think Malwin Malwin Roberts was his name. He was a dear, dear man. Became a dear friend of mine, and I was probably the best player he, he found. You know, so. Um, he uh, he said to Bill, "Take me to the best game in 
happening today. And we were top of the league, so I played for St. Kevin's. We were top of the league. I think we were playing a team that were up there with us. So that was the best game. And Malwin liked me. And I only lived five minutes from the pitch we were playing on and he found out where I lived and he went around and knocked on my hall door and uh, and the rest is history. How was the trial, you know, to, to go over and, you know, to know that you're playing uh, and you're being judged while you're playing and that's obviously part and parcel of being a footballer, I suppose, particularly when you get to a professional level, everything you do is... is being judged by coaches or managers or fans or pundits or whatever it might be. But at that age, was it easy to sort of put that to one side and just try and play in that game? Or, you know, especially maybe in a trial game where every single player is trying to impress, it can't always be, it can't be easy. It's a long time ago now, so I don't exactly remember the circumstances, but uh, I know I was nervous because... You know, you're waiting for this day to come. You know, it was, it was very well organized over London Colony. We are playing on a beautiful pitch. We had beautiful kits. We had all the scouts on the sideline, you know, the chief scout. And they're looking at these players and, and maybe, you know, trying to find maybe three or four in 22. And uh, so it's a bit daunting. And I didn't start very well, but I, I turned it around the second half and and had a really really good game and you can tell by the reaction of the of the Arsenal people around that you've done well because they want to speak to you they want to find out about you you know where you're from uh, you know maybe big family things like that you get the, ten- the attention if you do well and you know I had my brother Eamon with me and uh uh, Eamon was living in London at the time and uh, he he knew I'd done well so yeah, we were we were delighted. You know, I went back to Dublin knowing that I was going back to Arsenal. I mean, you've worked in youth development, and we'll, we'll come on to that. But the difference now between how a young player, a young footballer, is trained and and how it happened back in your day is is night and day. You know, in terms of the training, even just facilities and things like that, but also what's expected of you as a, as a young professional, you know, the jobs you have to do, cleaning the boots, all that kind of stuff. Was that formative for you? Was that something that you think when you look back on, okay, that made me a bit stronger. I was able to, to learn from that or was it just a pain in the hole? It was a pain in the arse. <laughs> there was there was better things to be doing football wise or educationally than cleaning the dressing rooms and and uh, and and scrubbing boots and uh, cleaning the cleaning the showers and the baths and things like that. Uh, you know, thankfully that doesn't exist anymore. But I think there was a there was, there was a uh, a belief back in the day that it was formative and it was good for you keep your feet on the ground and you know show show how tough this this game is uh but we would have been far better off spending it developing our skills or developing our bodies or even going to school and having some more education yeah 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 well i mean that's that's the way it was how quickly or how soon did you start uh, flirting around with the with the first team uh, in terms of training and things like that well uh you know, it was a situation then 
uh, and the older older Arsenal supporters listening to this uh, will will remember that you know you were you had your youth games probably on a Saturday morning, but if you progressed and I did at at sixteen maybe sixteen and a half I was playing reserve football, but in those days reserve football took place on three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and if the first team were away, we got to play at Highbury. And there was men playing. You were playing against men when you played against in reserves. And I was in there probably at 16, 16 and a half. Um, and, uh, you know, I was playing with the likes of Charlie George, maybe John Radford, Peter Story, who coming back from injury or else they'd been left out of the team, things like that. Yeah, because you didn't have many subs back then. No, it was uh, one, sub, one sub. One sub, yeah. So, you know, the first team would maybe travel with 13 players rather than, you know, the entourage they go with now, probably about 22, 23. Uh, so uh, you got to play on a Saturday afternoon. You know, you were playing against men. And uh, I, I did well and I was doing well. And I was about 17 and a half. I would have been, it was October. Funny enough, it was 50 years the other day when I made my debut. Wow. Uh, so it was October uh 6th i think it was um and i was in the i was in the there's two dressing rooms at highbury there was the away dressing room and the home dressing room we because we weren't in the first team squad used to change in the uh, uh away dressing room yeah. and one of the lads who was cleaning you know one of the, i was now a professional so i didn't have to clean dressing rooms anymore but one of the lads who was cleaning the first team dressing room said ran in and he said chippy your name's on the team sheet i went what and i went in and there it was number 12 birmingham city the next day and that was the start and what was your first start was uh, I, I was sub and when you're sub you're kind of i was thinking well if hopefully we'll be winning well maybe go two or three up and i'll be brought on the last 15 or 20 minutes or things had gone badly. Once, the, you know, Bertie Mee was the manager then. Let's have a look at this kid. And uh, it didn't happen like that. After 10 minutes, Jeff Blockley, who was the Arsenal centre-back at the time, he got injured and I was on. I was, you know, in, in, in at the deep end. Sink or swim. Yeah. Was that something, you know, as a, as a competitor, is that something you relish? Because every footballer, I think, you know, regardless of age or level, you know, wants to play as much as possible. And the idea that a game might be, you know, a step up or, or a big challenge is an exciting one, I think. Absolutely. It's what I was waiting for, you know, all through my probably career, you know, getting the knock on the door to say, would you, would you let your son come to Arsenal on trial? to getting an, an apprenticeship at the club, to getting a pro contract at the club. Um, these were all kind of things you were you were wanting to happen. So, you know, bring it on. When, when I got my chance in the first team, that's the way I looked at it. I had a really, really good game uh, and actually kept my place for the following week against Spurs, where I had a lousy game, never kicked <laughs> the ball, and we lost 2-0. So I was back in the resis for another couple of months but I think I showed enough in that first game that I was going to get another chance and that's that was the aim then to get back in the team and to get out of the away dressing room into the first team dressing room at that time football was hard 
I think maybe a bit harder than it is now because of just the conditions that it was played in. The pitches weren't as good. The players certainly didn't get anywhere near as much protection as they do these days from the officials. And there's a, was it Tommy Smith who uh, gave you some verbals uh, at Anfield after you, uh, I don't know if you went past him or whatever it was, but, you know, what's that like? What What's that aspect of the game like, particularly when you're a, a young guy? And I guess if you're a young guy, you can play without fear and all those kinds of things. But if you've got someone like Tommy Smith, who, you know, looks like he could bend a steel pole into, and he's telling you he's going to fucking break your legs, you know, how how do you... How do you come to terms with that uh, and that side of the game? And, and how much of what goes on on the pitch do we as as sort of ordinary fans not really understand in terms of the, the verbals and the sledging, if you want to call it that, that every bit of trying to get an advantage isn't just about what you do on the ball. It's about what you can do with somebody's mind. Well, uh, that, that went on, you know, intimidation, we call it. So... Uh as you say, people or players could get away or an awful lot more than they can now. You know, one of Tommy Smith's early tackles on on a player would probably be a red card now. Uh, but that was him telling you, you know, I'm Tommy Smith, and you know, you don't you don't take liberties with me. You know, uh, I knew what I was going out because in the first team dressing room when I was picked, I was picked to play outside left against them. So they told me, watch yourself, you're up against. Tommy Smith, you know, but you have no fear, you know. I took him on a few times. He, he, he. Uh, I got the better of him a few times, and then he warned me that you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna carry on like this, you know, you might end up in Liverpool Infirmary. <laughs> but you didn't. No, I didn't. Yeah. And I think once I showed what I could do that night, I was in that first team dressing room. You know, I was, I was going to be in the squad, and mm. I was going to be playing a lot more and so forth. So. Uh, it was it, it was it, it was intimidating, but it wasn't a bridge too far. Sure, you mentioned in the book early on there was a, a sort of some homesickness, and you went home, and then you came back. But in the seventies at Arsenal, um, you know, and I I know this because I was a, an Irish kid growing up in England, and people often ask me like, why are you an Arsenal fan? I grew up, I was born in uh, Croydon, but grew up in Yorkshire. And people are saying, well, why are you an Arsenal fan? And the only thing I can think of, I don't ever remember choosing, but the only thing I can think of is like reading Shoot or all the football magazines that I was obsessed with back then. There's a club that has Liam Brady and David O'Leary and Frank Stapleton and John Devine, Pat Rice, Sammy Nelson, Pat Jennings, this, this Irish uh, community at the club, if you want to call it that. And it, it, it does come across from what you write in the book that it was – a community, even though there was, you know, at that stage, I didn't know the difference between North and South, you know, but, but nor did you guys experience that within the, the dressing room. No, you know, we, it was, uh, I think Stephen Ray, the great Irish actor, uh, was asked why he's an Arsenal supporter. And he said, well, it was the nearest thing to United Ireland team that there was around. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great, you know, and a lot of Arsenal uh, fans, Irish, Irish Arsenal fans, were, became Arsenal fans because that was the situation, a bit like yourself, Andrew. So uh, when we won the Cup in 79, there was an Irish flag on the front of the bus, you know. Yeah. You, you, where would you see that? You, you, 
I don't think you'd seen any club, you know, but there were so many Irish lads in the team. So um, it was uh, it was a great time. Uh, we were a very we came in the late seventies under Terry Neal and Don Howe. We became a very very good team. Uh, three FA Cup finals on the trot, which was unheard of in those days, you know, to get to the cup final three times on the trot. A European Cup winners' cup final. Unfortunately, we ended up with too many silver medals and only one gold medal. But uh, we were a very, very good team, and there were great times at the club. Yeah, and was that uh, that Irishness in the dressing room? Was that how important was that for you guys, or was it just? you know, a happy coincidence that, that you were there. Um, you know, when you have a relationship with, with someone like Frank Stapleton, you know, who didn't grow up far away from you, David O'Leary, same thing, you know, do those relationships or do you think those relationships, you know, uh, bore out positively on, on, on the team and how you guys were able to play? Well, it wasn't a coincidence in as much as that, you know, once I went to, to Arsenal, uh, the club began to take Dublin very seriously. And, uh, and then the following year, Frank was recruited. And then the next year, David O'Leary was recruited. A uh, little bit after David, John Devine. Um, and uh, quite a few Irish players who didn't make it as well, you know. But there was there was a connection. Um, so that wasn't, there wasn't a coincidence. But um, maybe the fact that we teamed up with Pat Rice and, and uh, Sammy... Uh, was a little bit because they had they were homegrown players as well. Sammy's from Belfast. Pat was born in Belfast, but uh, but went over as a kid before he was a footballer. He went over as a kid with his family, and then Terry Neal went made one of his greatest ever signings by signing Pat Jennings from Spurs, and uh, and there we were, like six, seven of us. Uh, I don't think all seven ever played in a match. I think there might have been seven play in a game but not together I think John Devine might have come on for Sammy or vice versa in mm. one of the games so it was amazing really amazing but uh, and and never happened again the three cup finals 79 obviously is the the one where success came and that for me is you know the first game I can ever remember watching first Arsenal game I can remember watching I remember watching the 1978 World Cup final uh, and being distraught that Holland hadn't won it and all the ticker tape and all the rest of it but the Arsenal game because football wasn't on TV back then you know you got the cup final and you got match of the day but there was no live football on TV uh, the way there is now that final uh, and that medal that you won that day, uh, it must be something that you still look back on with a, a huge amount of pride. Absolutely, yeah. You know, uh, the FA Cup has lost uh, quite a lot of its uh, importance or prestige uh, in today's football. But then it was huge. It was like it was like the Super Bowl in England, you know, and everybody tuned into it. Uh, and if you got there, you're the centre of attention. Um, so to win it was absolutely fantastic um, and we bounced back after losing in 78 to Ipswich we bounced back to win it which made it that bit sweeter uh, and it was a, an unbelievable finish to that cup final yeah. we were we were 2-0 up we were cruising and then uh, it all fell asunder and all of a sudden we're 2-2 two -two and uh, we score in the final minute Alan Sunderland great cross for Graham Ricks 
Gary Bailey comes for it, misses it, and Alan, uh, the good opportunist that he was, was there waiting to side foot volley it in. I mean, it did start with a good pass from someone else for Graham Ricks down that left-hand side, or was that just here, you have a go, I'm knackered? Well, I ran I ran about, I suppose, about 30, 35 yards with the ball, uh, but my thought was get it in there half before we lose another goal. <laughs> but Rixie, uh, you know, we had a great understanding, myself and Graham, and he came up on my outside very fast, you know, and uh, clipped a lovely ball in. And then a ball that Bailey thought he was going to get, but it was kind of tempting him to come for it. Mm. And uh, Alan and then side footed it in. So there we go. That was my only winner's medal at Arsenal. We were never going to win the league, Andrew, because we just weren't strong enough. We didn't have the have the squad. We didn't have the resources. But we were a great cup cup team and four cup finals. Only to win one mm. leaves a bit of a sour taste in the mouth. But at least we did get one over the line. I mean, the following year. In 1980, there was the cup final against West Ham and then, of course, the um, Cup Winners' Cup final against Valencia. But maybe lost in the mists of time, people just look at the results. They don't realise how many games you played that season. It's quite interesting to consider, you know, all the talk of player welfare these days and, you know, are they being run to, you know, is there too much football? Are they being asked to do too much? And was it 70 games? Yeah, 70 games. 70 games 70 in one game. season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They play, what do they play now? 38 league games, you know. Uh, and probably win, if you were to win the European Cup and the FA Cup, you could you could get 70, but the squads are so big now, aren't they? That they just rotate and they give players a rest and you could maybe have an easy tie that you give your your big players a rest and things like that. But in those days, those things didn't yeah. happen, you know. So we had to play. And by the time we got to West Ham and uh, and, and Valencia, uh, although against Valencia, I thought we were very unlucky not to win the match in 90 minutes. Uh, even going into extra time, I thought we were the better team. Against West Ham, we didn't really perform on the day. Uh, but it did. that season did catch up with us in, you know, uh, it, it was the bridge too far. It was a much smaller squad as well, though. You know, you don't have 25 players and three goalkeepers and, you know, a bunch of reserves and youth team players. If you absolutely need them, it was, what, 15, 16 players? Yeah, I would have said probably 14 players maybe shared the brunt of that 70 games. Like, I, I think I played 59, maybe 60. Brian Talbot, I think, played all of them. Can you imagine? How yeah. do you do that physically? Like how is, I mean, surely the players then were experiencing some of the same injuries that players have now, but... Well, from my, from my memory... Uh, you all had hamstrings back then, right? Yeah, but, you know, we were, we were fit, we were super fit, but, uh, and from my memory, uh, you know, we didn't do any training. It was just like in massage bath maybe a walk around the pitch maybe a jog around the pitch a few stretches uh home you know rest up got a game the next night uh, the same again the next day so uh we kind of got through it with with some difficulty we didn't even have a, we didn't have a a masseur we didn't have anybody to give us a rub down you know yeah Terry Neal and Don Howe were doing it, hardly trained in that in that profession. And the Al Fields, the assistant manager, just yeah, people. And Al Fields, who was the assistant kit man, he was a great, great character, a former player. Alf in the in the thirties and forties, 
you know, he was probably the best at it. And uh, you'd rather have Alf giving you a massage than Terry Neal or Don Howe, to be honest. Right. <laughs> I won't ask any more questions about that. But another point about, you know, football back then in the era that you played in, and, and there's a little story about how you, it could have been uh, Ireland playing um, in England at Wembley and you stayed in a hotel and then had to go across the road to train in a local park. Well, that, that, that's a, 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 another subject, Andrew, to be quite honest. It's, uh, it's, it's how poor the organization was at international level if you were an Irish player. Yeah. We didn't, they didn't have the money to spend, to be fair. They didn't think of spending it properly, you know. Uh, and we ended up, you know, we were a bit of a ragball rovers outfit. So... At the time, you mentioned Arsenal didn't have the resources. There seemed to be a reluctance on the part of the club to acknowledge the way things were changing in football in terms of transfer fees and investment and, and that kind of stuff. And the reluctance to do that, I mean, you could, you could have gone somewhere other than Juventus. In the book, you mentioned that Arsenal might have been happier for you to go to Manchester United because they would have got more money for you. But... How determined were you maybe to challenge yourself as a player and go to Serie A at that time, which was probably seen as the uh, the best in terms of what European football or what European leagues had to offer? Well, first of all, let's address the reasons why I wanted to leave. Uh, I wanted to leave because I, I felt that club hadn't looked after me financially I think when you're a homegrown player and it might have been the same for Charlie George it was certainly the same for Frank Stapleton uh, who left after me was that the club kind of took for granted the fact that you were a homegrown player so you might get a player like Malcolm McDonald coming in from Newcastle for a record fee or maybe Brian Talbot from Ipswich and you knew that they were earning much more than the players who had grown up at the club. Now, that doesn't happen anymore, you know. No. Thankfully, that doesn't happen anymore. But So you, you've kind of got that in your mind. Then also the ambition of the club. You know, are they going to really want to challenge for the league? Are we going to spend a million in, on a transfer fee like Liverpool were doing or Nottingham Forest were doing or Manchester City were doing? Uh, no, we weren't. So that was factored in. And then I thought I was going to go to Germany uh, and follow what Keegan had done, going to Hamburg. I thought I was going to Bayern Munich. But uh, that that fell through. And at that time, Italy opened up its its football again to foreign players because after 1966 uh, World Cup here uh, in England... Um, Italy got knocked out by North Korea, which was a shock and a disgrace back in Italy. And they blamed there was too many foreign players in their league. So they stopped any more foreign players coming in until 1980. And then they opened it up again. And that's when uh, Juventus targeted me and, and, and took, me to, took me to Turin. What were the big differences between not just... Arsenal and Juventus, but maybe the English and Italian football cultures. Was it more tactical? Was there greater preparation in terms of the opposition you were going to play? Those kinds of things. 
Uh, yeah, I would have said, uh, you know, the training was m much the same. You know, I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, you know, Don Howe had any any uh, weaknesses when it came to tactics or compared to an, an Italian guy. It was certainly more te technical. The game was more technical. It was slower. It was, there was less less of the ball in the air. Uh, it was played on the ground, whereas in England it was always kind of get it forward from, you know don't play out from the back things like that that was different you got time on the ball in Italy unless you're a forward player playing in the last third of the pitch in the middle of the pitch you always had time on the ball and uh, that suited me um, and it, the league was only going to get better at that time they, um, the Italian players were very very strong you know uh, they they won the uh, they won the World Cup in 1982, and uh, so that tells you how good they were. And seven Juventus players were in that team. So when I joined in 1980, I was playing with some really top players. Um, the game, um, yeah, I would say more technical. Uh, tactical, maybe, maybe, because it wasn't played so much in the air, so you had to do things to maybe break teams down or defend certain situations. Trapattoni was our coach then, and he was, a, you know, he's got to be one of the best people I've worked under. You were obviously very successful at Juventus, but football is a ruthless business. And at the end of your second year, you were uh, aware that the club were going to replace you with Michel Platini. I guess it didn't go down well at first, but how quickly do you come to terms with something like that when you realise... You know, it's not necessarily a personal thing. It's more about maybe the the wishes of a, an owner or a manager and, and that kind of stuff. Well, in my case, it was the owner. Uh, it was Gianni Agnelli, who was uh, owner of Fiat and multi-billion pound businesses in Italy. And if you want a comparison, a bit probably a bit like Roman Abramovich when he was at Chelsea. You know, he wanted to have a couple of selections at least of who he fancied. And I think they were chasing Platini before me. Uh, so in my first year, we won the league. I did ever so well. The second year, again, doing well. We got knocked out of the European Cup, which was the holy grail for Juventus. Uh, they'd won plenty of leagues, but they never won the European Cup. And I probably think going out to Anderlecht then, and Yelly might be thinking, well, if I can get Platini and I'll get him in. Uh, I didn't expect it to happen I didn't see it coming um, and uh, I was in a bit of a daze because I was told with a month to go before the end of the season we were we were trying to win the league again we were top of the league uh, you know head to head with Fiorentina then and I just didn't see it coming and I was in a bit of a shock uh, for you know for a few days but I wasn't I wasn't going to play for them but my solicitor and and you could call him an agent Ronnie Teeman Ronnie said to me look you've got to finish out the season in the most professional way you can so you know knuckle down and play the last three games and which we did and we got five points from six and we ended up pipping Fiorentina by a, by a point yeah i mean that be professional thing and and finish out you had a decisive role in those last three games with that penalty. Yeah, and, you know, what I remember about those times, 
Andrew is of Paolo Rossi made us come back to Italian football after being banned. Uh, he trained with us all year at Juventus and he uh, he played in that third last game against Udinese and actually scored in it. Then we drew at home to Naples nil nil. So it was still in the balance going to Catanzaro in uh, in the south of Italy and we got a penalty and I scored it and. Uh, you know, I left in the best possible circumstances. Yeah. How determined were you to stay in, in Italy? Because you took to life there, learned the language. Well, um, I was two years married. And uh, initially, I uh, I uh, I said, I, I don't want to stay here. If this is what they do to a player, help them win. Uh, not one <laughs> league, but two leagues. Uh, I want to go home, and Arsenal were home was England to me because you know I yeah. spent ten years there, uh, and uh, I wanted maybe to go back to English football. But my my wife said to me, you know, well we've had two years in Italy. Why, why don't we try another another club? Yeah, and uh, she was right. So. We had uh, another five years in in that wonderful country and that wonderful league. Yeah, Sampdoria, Inter Milan, uh, Ascoli, uh, a move I think which you uh, write about regretting because you know perhaps the person in charge of that club wasn't um, wasn't as on the level as they should be, and then returning to England to West Ham. Uh, I know you did sort of broach the idea of coming back to to Arsenal but things were going on there with George Graham where he felt maybe you weren't the right fit well Ronnie Teeman was my was my agent but he was more of a solicitor than an agent so he wasn't bringing managers up to see who's interested in bringing me like goes on now agents contact clubs don't they and things like that so I I had friends in the press a couple of not many in the press, a couple. Uh, the ones that didn't and see Reg Drury was Reg Drury was a great journalist. Uh, worked for the News of the World, soccer man through and through, loved his football. I always suspected he was Spurs, though, but he never he never admitted to having a team, but I always suspected he was Spurs man. But anyway, we were very good friends, and uh, I said, Reg, can you ask George Graham, you know, I'm coming, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Will he have me back? And Reg said, he will, you know, he could, he, in those days, a journalist can pick up the phone to a manager. Now, you probably have to go through the press office in the club, you know, and, and you'd be lucky to get to speak on a one-to-one basis with a player or a manager. But those days was different. And uh, and Reg contacted George and George said, no, I'm not, I'm not interested, Reg. Uh, and he, he uh, it, it was quite obvious to me that George had, in his mind, he was going to go for younger players, players who were hungry, wanted success, like Steve Bold, Nigel Winterburn, you know, Ian Wright, you know. <clears throat> so it didn't happen, and uh, and uh, I played an international match for my country against Scotland, and um, I played all right, and John Lyle was at the match, uh, the West Ham manager, and uh, within a week I was out of Ascoli and, and back playing in London. Did you enjoy West Ham? Yeah, I liked West Ham. Yeah, yeah. it was great. Yeah, it was great. Um, uh, great supporters, uh, great atmosphere at the old Upton Park. Uh, and I, I thoroughly, John played the football I wanted to play. I, I really enjoyed it. 
you had a big injury there though as well you did your your cruciate um yeah that kind of stopped me and i was only i was only there like probably uh less than one season uh uh and i was 31 when i ruptured my cruciate ligament and I was out for nearly 10 months uh, without being able to play. And that kind of, you know, uh, it it limited to what I did for West Ham. Uh, I I played okay, but when I came back from injury, you're not the same when you come back at 31 from a bad injury like that. Particularly when maybe the the techniques to repair that that specific injury, which is a really serious one for a footballer, weren't as advanced as they are now. Correct. Uh, you know, you'd probably get over that injury in four or five months now, with uh, with the advances that have been made in, in medically. Um, and those days, it took you the best part of a year, and then you're coming back and you're not quite the same. You know, I didn't have a ligament replacement. They just tied my ligaments together, my old ones that were ruptured, they tied them together, told me to build up my my thigh muscles to protect my knee, uh, but, you know, that's hardly hardly the, the, the way things are done now. Now, do you remember the moment where you, you know, realized or decided that you were going to hang up your boots? It was probably to do with Jack Charlton, you know, I had... Uh, been uh, a regular for Jack uh, before my injury um, and then you know 10 months away from the Irish team Jack moved on to other players and uh, uh, when I realised I wasn't going to be in his plans uh, I kind of thought this would be a good time to retire so I retired in 1990 How was your relationship with Jack ups and downs not really, mainly up. But yeah. when you know he, he took me off after thirty odd minutes in a match against West Germany, where we had a blazing row in the dressing room at half time, and I called him a few <laughs> choice words, and he told me to shut up, and you know, uh, and then it was a bit frosty for a while, but we uh, we made up. He he wrote me a nice letter saying I retired straight away after that match uh, because I knew I wasn't in his plans. Uh, he'd moved on to other players, so I didn't want to just be hanging around, you know, hoping for a place even on the bench, you know. Uh, so I um, I hung up my boots. Jack wrote me a nice letter, and we we uh, we repaired the, the 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 problems we had, and I I followed them to um, the nineteen ninety World Cup as a as a as a pundit for the BBC in 94 World Cup. Uh, so, What was that like in 1990, though, you know, to, to see Ireland at a World Cup in Italy, you know, your your second home, if you like. Well, third home, I guess, after Ireland, then England, then Italy, right? But, but you know, to be within that sort of the proximity of, of your playing career and then to sort of sit and watch, it must have been a little bit bittersweet. It was, yeah. Obviously very pleased that we did so well. Like Ireland get to quarterfinals, go out only by a single goal to the Italians in Rome. Uh, we had some great, great times. Ireland, uh, you know, Jack was a very functional manager. We weren't playing beautiful football by any means, but we were getting results and he knew how to get results. But the whole country went absolutely berserk here, you know, so... 
um, in Italy. I was there. I was as close as I could be without playing because I was, you know, in the best seats. I was in and around the dressing room after the games. I was in the hotel having a few drinks with, with the players. I had a ball, you know, but there was quite a bit in my head saying I wish I could have been here. Yeah, for sure. There is... Um Stuff about your managerial career in the book, which I'll let people read because I just want to move on and talk a little bit about your role at Arsenal and the the head of youth development. What is the biggest challenge in that role? You know, uh, and I think what you did obviously set foundations at, at the football club that exist to this day. But the amount of talent that comes through at a young age, how difficult is it to to spot the ones who are really going to make it because there are so many factors. A player can be maybe physically more dominant at a young age because they've matured maybe a little bit ahead of, of, of some of the other players. How hard is it to keep an eye on that? Or how hard is it? How do you, how do you work through the process of identifying talent that you think is going to be able to make it for the first team at Arsenal? And if not at Arsenal, maybe go on and have a, a career somewhere else. Well, it's not as detailed as you as you're describing, Andrew. It's a bit like you spread your net and you catch all these fish, and maybe you know three or four of them are gonna really go all the way, you know, uh, and maybe half of them will get a career in the game, and the other half might 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 not, you know. So uh, when you're when you're looking at at young lads of eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years of age. Nobody knows for certain that they're going to be. But over the course of time, when you get to know the the boys uh, and girls now, because Arsenal have got an academy for, for girls as well, you recognize the ones who are dedicated and really want to make it, feet on the ground, uh, as well as having the ability that's needed. But one, you can't do one and not the other, you know. You can be dedicated, but if you don't have the ability, sure. you'll only get so far. But if you have the ability and dedication, you can go all the way. And, well, we had quite a few go, go through the system. And um, we, didn't have, we didn't have a training ground for, solely for, for the kids. So we created that, myself and Richard Carr, uh, who's a, a great servant of the club as a director. Carr family have been in the, in the club for donkey's years. Um, we 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 work together to uh, create um, you know uh, a process uh, where we could have great facilities for the boys, great organisation, good coaches. I had great staff working for me. David Court, ex-player, he was a great right-hand man to me. Roy Massey, uh, he looked after the younger element in the academy. Many of them are in the first team now. You know. Roy recruited these kids at seven and eight. Vakai Osaka, Emil Smith-Rowe, Eddie Nketiah we got from Chelsea. Chelsea thought he wasn't that good. We recruited him. Reese Nelson. You know, they were, they've all been at the club since they were, apart from Eddie, the other three have been at the club since they were eight and nine. So... Um, we did a we did a, a really good job, and you know we got the likes of Ashley Cole, Jack Wilshire, Kieran Gibbs, you know, 
it was hard to get in that Arsenal team when you were a, yeah. a, a youth player because we were so good, weren't we? You know, Arsene yeah. Wenger's years. Like he, he, you know, you find a midfield to replace Patrick Vera. It wasn't easy. No, it's still an ongoing process, I think. The, the What changed when you were able to bring in younger players from across Europe? Because that wasn't always part of, of the process. But then you... You have, you know, players like Cesc Fabregas, Hector Bellerin who came in, um, Sebastian Svard, people like that who, you know, the Swedish guys, uh, Seb Larsson, for example. Did they bring something to the academy dynamic that was, you know, uh, tangible? Well, Arsene was ahead of the game. Uh, he was ahead of the game uh, in bringing in all those great French players. Um you know, everyone copied him you know, within a two or three years after that. You know, but when when, but I remember having a meeting with him, with him and and Steve Rowley, uh, who was chief scout at the time, and Arson said, "I want you to scout for young players outside of England." Uh, he said, "This is a a European game now, you know, and let's let's look." look outside of Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales, which was traditionally the, the way things were done. And we did, you know. Steve Rowley brought in some great young players. Uh, I brought in some really, really good players. I think Steve's uh, outfit brought in Cesc Fabregas. He's got to be the best foreign player we brought in as a kid without any doubt, you know. But we had, we had uh, as you mentioned, uh, Seb Larson. I thought he maybe could have got... A better, a better, uh, a better run out at Arsenal. You know, uh, I think uh, uh, he was maybe overlooked a little bit. But you know, there wasn't many that Arsenal missed. Um, Nicholas Bentner. We all chuckle when we talk about Nicholas, but he was he, was, he could have been a really really good player. But unfortunately, Nicholas didn't have that dedication. I'm talking about. That's what I was yeah, asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I interviewed him. Um, well, last year, maybe the year before, when his book came out, and you know, he did sort of acknowledge that you know, he could have been a bit more um, professional, I suppose, during his during his time at Arsenal and maybe at other clubs as well. But is that just sometimes the character of a of a player that that was his personality, yeah. his character? You know, I probably had him in my office more for disciplinary reasons than anything else. You know. And uh, and I'm sure Arson had had problems with him as well. But if you look at his record for Denmark and how many goals he scored, you know he's a highly talented lad. But he just didn't have the the, the dedication that's needed. You know, it was, it was a shame. You know, I, I think he could have been a really good player. So let me just sort of finish up by asking you what you make of of Arsenal at the moment and how much you're enjoying. Maybe the the revitalization of of the club and the team because it was, you know, for a few years it was quite fraught and the atmosphere wasn't great and there were a lot of complaints about all kinds of things. But everybody appears to be singing from the same hymn sheet to a large extent now that that um, the process that Mikel Arteta has put in place looks like it's it's paying dividends. So what do you make of how? the club and the team have come through that period to, to get to where we are now. And I mean, did you enjoy last season? I did. I, I really enjoyed last season, particularly the first half of it, you know, where we were outstanding. Yeah. Some of the football we played was, was really brilliant, you know, and, uh, 
and scoring goals and beating teams and sometimes the game would be over before you know half an hour you know we were so good uh, but then it came down to resources in the end, injuries, suspensions. We lost some very important players, and you kind of knew we were, we were, we weren't going to see the distance out. You know, if it, it was a racehorse, we were going to start flagging the the last two furlongs to go. You know, so it was a pity, really. Um, uh, but I think Arteta has done a, a really good job. He's uh, He's rejuvenated the team, hasn't he? You know, he's made, he's made it a young team. It's an up-and-coming team. Uh, with a lot of talent, playing really good football. Uh, and, of course, I'm loving the fact that Hale End is making a good contribution to what's going on. Yeah, I was going to ask you, just finally, who who do you enjoy watching the most in this team? And I just sort of written down uh, Martin Odegaard because, you know, I'm guessing that left foot is something you could connect with. But also the, the left foot of Bukayo Saka, you know, being that Hale End graduate and, and becoming a, a huge star for for Arsenal. Yeah, both those players I enjoy watching. I must admit, I wasn't too sure about Odegaard when we bought him, but uh, he's proven me wrong. You know, we all have opinions and uh, it's nice when they change for the better. Uh, I think Odegaard has been tremendous. Um, and Saka, uh I think he's one of the most exciting players they've had at Arsenal for many, many years, haven't they? You know, and he, the the bigger the challenge, the seem he seems to handle it. You know, um, I'd like to see Emil Smith Rowe go get a get a bit more time. Uh, if but then again, that's my hail end hat. Well, he's an exciting player. He's a fun player to watch, isn't he? He's sort of got something a bit uh, like there's something a little bit old school about the way he plays. Yeah, I think he's a very intelligent player. He keeps the game moving. I think he can make goals. I think he'll score goals. I think he just needs an opportunity. But then, you know, if you're getting results like we are, how many games have we played now? Eight, six wins and two draws, is it? Is that right, Andrew? Uh, or it could be seven, maybe? Ten games we've played. Is it? I think so. Won seven, drawn three, I don't know. Uh, you should know two. this. I should know. We've <laughs> drawn two anyway. We drew, drew the Derby and drew Fulham. So it must... Uh, I can't remember. I should look at the. Uh, uh, I think I think we've won either six or seven. Put right. it that way, you know. So you can't you can't you can't have a you know you can't say well the the team has not been picked right you know. Yeah. Uh, Arteta's doing really good stuff. I thought uh, although there's a lack of uh, goalmouth incident against Manchester City, it was good to see him out tactic uh, Guardiola. I thought that was very enjoyable. Yeah, you enjoyed that game. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it because I didn't feel at any time we were going to lose it. Whereas, Which makes a change, doesn't it? Well, whereas the one that was probably the decider the year before when Manchester City, we had we started great. The first half hour, we could have been maybe one or two up. When, you re, when we didn't capitalize on those chances, you just kind of knew something was going to go wrong uh, because they were so good and things like that. And we were maybe a little bit nervous. Well, I think this time round we showed that, uh, you know, if they want to play it their way, we can play that way as well. Yeah. Bit of versatility. Well, look, the book is called Born to be a Footballer. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you, Liam. Thanks very much. Thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Thank you so much to Liam Brady. If you are looking to get a copy of the book and you're local to Arsenal, they're stocking it in the armory. Liam did a bit of a signing there after the Manchester City game, and I'm sure they still have copies in there. Or, of course, you can get it from your local independent bookshop who will be happy to order it in for you if they don't have it in stock. It'll only take a couple of days. Support your local bookshops and get your copy of Born to be a Footballer by Liam Brady there. Right, I'm going to leave it there. We will look ahead to the Chelsea game in a bit more detail in our preview podcast on Patreon. That will be Friday afternoon. So please do join us for that. If you're not already a member, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash arsblog. For now, hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much as always for being with us and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.